0: Heavenly
1: Father, as we approach this morning in this series, which is entitled Love Is, it's designed that way to remind us of who you are. And because it is who you are, and because love is not just a way to be like you, but you are love. and Love is you. If we are love, then we are like you. What a wonderful prayer that is. Help us to be loving. And everything that's associated with that, Help us to be like you in every way, not just to the people we are around on Sunday morning, but to the people we'll encounter tomorrow morning, to the people we'll encounter when we're stressed this week, to the people we'll encounter when we're rushed and hurried, to the people we'll encounter on our bad days as well as our good, to people we encounter who we've had conflict with and those who we haven't. Help us to be you at all times. Transform the image of your Son, reflecting who you are, who is love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been interesting to try to not necessarily distill down what love is into six lessons. And uh, love is a great many things, obviously. Uh, But obviously with the context of many things, I chose things which I think are pertinent and choose things which are true regardless of of context, of setting, of congregation. And so, when it comes to this next one, this arguably may be some of the most challenging, this lesson. So I say that maybe to warn you. Maybe. Uh, I say that to say, it's good stuff, I think, otherwise I wouldn't be preaching it. And I say that to say because everything in here I need to work on just as much as anyone I'm talking to. So keep that in mind as well. One go into a couple of different scenarios. One is a history scenario for you. and if you're not a fan of history, it's okay. It only lasts one point. Many years ago, Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of Great Britain from 1937 to 1940, came back from a conference in Munich where he was meeting with a young person who is having quite a following, who's assembling a little bit of an army, and they were curious to his intentions. And he came back to Great Britain and read this following announcement. We, the German Führer and Chancellor and the British Prime Minister, have had further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance to our two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire for our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus contribute to assure the peace of Europe dated 30 September 1938 As recorded by reporters he then put this note aside and addressed the people there by saying My good friends for the second time in our history a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honour I believe it is peace for our time go home and get a good, quiet sleep. Adolf Hitler invaded Poland less than a year later and began World War II. Very differently was the approach his successor, one named Winston Churchill, took when confronting this upstart, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi army. In fact, in an address to the British commons, he took quite the opposite of the approach that Mr. Chamberlain had, of which he was assuring it was all good, assuring things he had no intention of actually knowing or keeping. It won't maybe be the intention, but Winston Churchill took a quite different approach. In fact, in his speech, he said things like this. Only 30 unwounded survivors of 4,000 men were brought off by the Navy, and we do not know the fate of their comrades. He said things like against this loss of over 30,000 men, British men, mind you. We can set a far heavier loss certainly inflict upon the enemy, but our losses in material are enormous. And he says I won't read this all necessarily, but the best we had to give gone to the British Expeditionary Force. They had the first fruits that all of our industry had to give, and now that is gone. And now there is further delay. How long it will be, how long will last depends upon the exertions upon me making this island. Very different approaches. Most famously, and I won't read all of this, you can go listen to the speech on YouTube. Most famously though, Churchill ended with this I'll start a couple sentences down. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen to the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing ground. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Quite a different approach from his predecessor. Here's the question. Chamberlain talked of what was and hopefully, you know, what could have been, most assuredly. Churchill spoke of what was very bluntly and what would be required of Britain. Which one was more kind or less kind to the British people? While you're dwelling on that, let's consider this scenario for a minute. Let's say that you go in, you've been having some stomach pains, you've been having some really, really tired symptoms, and you go to your doctor, and they get this exact test back. And your doctor looks at you with his assistant and goes... You'll be fine. Rest, eat well, and have some Tums for your stomach. Let's say in the next room, someone else has the exact same test result, exact same symptoms. But in fact, their doctor says, you have stage four pancreatic cancer, you have nine months to live. And you realize that your doctor couldn't bear to tell you the bad news. Now, obviously, that wouldn't happen in our time. He would lose his license, he'd be fired, bad things happen. But just for a second... Let's pretend that this is possible. Which doctor is more kind or less kind? Let's imagine, if you will, going back to your high school days that you're trying to be studious and you're trying to learn, you're trying to pay attention to the teacher, but yet there's the yakety-yak behind you who just will not hush. And no matter what you do, no matter how many times you try to suddenly say, shh, he won't or she won't shush, And the teacher is not doing anything about it. Just because it's easier to ignore the problem, it's easier to pretend it's not there, rather than to actually deal with it and have to involve their parents or have to actually have detention. And so thus, when test time rolls around for that lesson, you are stressed and you fail the test. Was your teacher more kind or less kind to you? Or more kind or less kind to them? The loudmouth? Finally, Imagine a couple which has had a fight. Except this fight's a pretty good one, and it lasts for several hours. It lasts throughout the day. They give each other the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. They give each other the passive-aggressive things, and eventually they stop. They eventually come back together, except that they don't actually deal with what the problem was. And so they each put on a happy face, and they try to move on with life. ...except that they know, each of them know... ...that even though they're not fighting at the moment... ...there's something in between them... ...but that thing is, is unresolved conflict. It's never dealt with, it just sits there. This barrier invisible between them. So when they have another fight... ...which is bound to happen because they never actually resolved the first one... ...yet again, the list and the stack of unresolved conflict adds up. Yet again, they fight over something and the unresolved conflict remains, except now it's bigger. Now, on the outside, even to their kids, they're pretty happy, because they're not fighting at the moment, so things must be good. In fact, they even enjoy family vacations, they enjoy family game nights, um, they enjoy doing things with their kids, except all underlying the surface is this unresolved conflict, which is growing and growing and growing. Many of you know this Divorce. because on the outside, even though they weren't fighting anymore, they also weren't talking to each other because there was so much unresolved conflict in the air. Now, imagine another couple who has a fight. It's a bad one. Yet, they come together, and even though that, I'll take it here, he did something stupid, as men are prone to do, He doesn't want to address it because he knows, even though it will be just a five-minute conversation, it will seem like the longest eternity of them all because he has to look at his wife and say, I was wrong, I am sorry. But he does. She then says, you know what, actually, here is my problem in this too. And they move on. And they are actually sincerely happy. Which one is more kind and less kind? Now, before any of you think that that last example about the divorced couple is anything that's pertinent to right now, that's the story of my parents. So don't think I'm talking to you. That's from my life. But it reveals something. What's the problem in these stories? Well, in the first one we have appeasing, which is telling someone what they want to hear. In the second one we have denial. Oh, they're not that bad. The loudmouth's not that bad. Uh, or, or uh, in that one it's you know the test results isn't that bad. And in third one we have inaction, the loud mouth, I know he's there but he's not doing anything. And in the fourth one we have unresolution, non resolution. I think most of you would probably agree that all of these are unkind. Except how often do we appease, deny, don't act, or unresolve things with each other? In the church, in our families, with our friends. And we do this sometimes in denial because we have this perception, and you already saw what I'm going to do, we have this perception, I think, among Christians that, well, conflict is bad. In fact, we want to believe there is no conflict. I had a Darth Vader meme last week and I had to put another one in here again. We want to believe if no conflict is there, then it's good, right? It's unkind. We also want to be nice. We want to be nice people and to say something to someone that might upset them is not a very nice thing to do, is it? what's the price of being unkind? I told you this would be a hard one. Today I want to look at love is kind. Or rather, to put another word, love is indeed kindness. And we'll look at three points. They won't take too long, hopefully. Kindness is in desire. Kindness in relationship. And kindness in Christ-likeness let's take the first one real quick. And for the record, I put this in here. There's not a nice slide at this time. I'm telling you so I know. The next slide, I don't approve of, but it was the only way to get everything on one slide just to get the information out there so we can all be on the same page. But I'm letting you know, there's not a nice looking slide at this time. So get ready for it. It's not that bad, but it's, I don't like it at all. It violates like every rule I have except color when it comes to slides. Anyway, doesn't matter. What is being kind? Well, Dictionary.com, the first thing, says, having or showing a friendly, generous, or considerate nature. Well, that's helpful, and we can imagine that, but it doesn't exactly go into what kindness is, or what does it really mean to be kind. Well, thankfully, we don't live just in Dictionary.com. We live in New Testament times. We live in Bible times. And the Bible word, like many Greek words, gives a lot more definitions about what this actually means. In the New Testament, this word, chrysotes, comes from the word Christas, which means useful, profitable, properly usable, i.e., well fit for use, what is really needed, kindness that is also serviceable, something that's of good service. It also comes from this word, chrysotes, useful kindness, refers to meeting a real need, real need. As some commentator put it, it says, spirit induced goodness which meets the need and avoids human harshness, which is cruelty. Now keep that word in mind, because we'll actually come back around to that in a few minutes. So this is our definition, and if you would allow me, Old Testament as well is based... Uh, Old Testament informs the New Testament. What's the Old Testament? Well, Old Testament's all over the place. We have hesed, Tob, rahman, hemlah, hen, sedek, sedekah, all these words basically... I, di- I didn't have time to go through all of the... there's hundreds, okay? What these words generally mean is goodness, good, mercy, compassion, righteous, righteousness. Even sometimes in the Psalms kindness is actually the word that is used for righteousness. You've heard me talk about before, righteousness is what? Right relationship, meaning if there's something in between me and Roland, if he hauls off and punches me in the face or cracks my back, even though I asked him to and paid him to, and I don't like it, he does a good job, don't be afraid of him. If there's something between us, no matter how much we act kindly toward each other, there's something there. We are not-right relationship. In fact, our relationship is crooked, meaning there's something there. And it's righteous in order to make that relationship right again. That's the same definition as God has with us, as we have with God, as we have with each other. That word is actually called kind in some psalms. So, to put it all together here, here's what we're talking about. Here's my rough definition, which with your approval we'll use for today. Kind is saying or doing what is needed to show goodness, mercy, and compassion to those we are in or should be in right relationship with. Good? Now, for those of you who notice, I ended that with a preposition... I will once again refer back to the great Winston Churchill who said, with such errant pedantry up with which I will not put, but not this slide. I'll do it later. Deal with it for now. Kind, first of all, in desire. Now, first and foremost, let's just make it very clear I don't mean this kind of desire for anything, or beast, or whatever. Not this kind of desire. That was odd timing, isn't it? <laughs> indesire. What do I mean by indesire? Well, I mean the same kind of desire that God had for Adam and Eve, and God had for all humans. That we would be in right relationship with Him. That we would be godly. That we would be close to Him. That we would be pure like Him. We would be holy like Him. So the whole point, as I've said many times lately, the whole point of the Levitical Code, to be holy in every aspect of our life like God. Yes? Except here's the thing. We know what happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I've talked about it in almost every sermon. You can't do love, apparently, without going back to Genesis 1. That's not a bad thing. We know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. They put a barrier in between them and God. They ran from God, hidden from God, created the conflict that must be dealt with, and God speaks to them. Just out of curiosity, did you notice that he says in Genesis 3, 15, a very, very famous verse, the first promise of Jesus, as a matter of fact, in the Bible, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, we like to focus on the he will crush your head part, but obviously we don't like the, God, you say he'll crush, he'll strike our heel? That's not nice. He goes on even in that very section. He says, To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. God, that's not very nice either. Not good at all. It gets worse. Well, maybe not worse. I haven't been through childbirth, so I can't say that. Genesis three, seventeen through nineteen. Cursed is the ground because of you, talking to the man. The painful toil you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So this is God comforting his people. It's not very anyway, birth, appreciate all. Any guys who farm appreciate how hard it is? Anyone appreciate that we have to die? That's what all this is saying. Yet it's kind. Why? I've said before, if Adam and Eve continued to eat fruit from the garden, they would live forever in a continual, eternal state of disconnect from God by pointing out what was going to happen by the necessary act of saying, you may not stay in the garden, so you may physically die, so you may actually be united with me, God is being kind. Because his ultimate desire is not their comfort. Their ultimate desire is not their emotional state of like, well, that doesn't sound very nice. He does care about those things. What's his ultimate desire? For them to be back with him. Another example of this is the flood. Genesis 6. Let's just read it real quick. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted. Also great timing. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret I had made them. God, that's not nice! Especially if you're not Noah or his family. <laughs> but it's kind. Why? Well, the first verse tells us here mankind have become so wicked that the only way that mankind would ever come to him again would be to restart and reset through a righteous man. The next verse is But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's kind. Because God's ultimate desire for His people is to be with Him. And this was the only way to do it. Was it kind for the Old Testament prophets in most of the Old Testament? Is it nice for most of the prophets in the Old Testament to say things to Israel like, you're committing idolatry, you're sinning, you're blaspheming the Lord, you're leading the people astray? If you're curious where I'm quoting this from, um, all that's idolatry. Pretty much all that's blaspheming. I'm thinking of Jeremiah specifically when he says to the shepherds of Israel, you are leading the people astray. He doesn't say it any more cut and dry than that. Is it nice for them to say, you're going to be destroyed? First Israel in 722 and then Judah in 586. That's not nice? Especially if you're an Israelite. you were an Israelite, when Nineveh and Babylon came, you'd be praying for the day of the Lord, except you didn't realize it was here. Nice. Depends on your definition. Kind? Yes. Because God said what was needed. Was it kind for Jesus to say to the Pharisees and teach you the law? So obey everything they teach you, but don't do as they do, Jesus said to the Pharisees. Jesus said about the Pharisees to his disciples. After all, they say one thing and do something else. They pile heavy burdens on people's shoulders and won't lift a finger to help. Everything they do is just to show off in front of others. They even make a big show of wearing Scripture verses on their foreheads and arms. And they were big tassels for everyone to see. They love the best seats at banquets and the front seats of the meeting places. And when they're in the market, they like having people greet them as their teachers. But none of you should be called a teacher. You only have one teacher and all of you are like brothers and sisters. Jesus continues later on in that very chapter, Woe to you, Pharisees and the scribes! Pharisees! Hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the wager matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate. Inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate. The outside may also be clean. Woe to you! You sense a trend here? Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but are within, are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you were a Pharisee, would you think Jesus was being nice? Is Jesus being kind? You're seeing a trend I hear, hopefully, as well. One more. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem... And suffer many things, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, o Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan! You are Peter. Is that nice? But it's kind. There's the whole brood of vipers thing too, from Matthew 12. What's the point? What's the point? It's a couple things. One, just to show us that sometimes, oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, being nice and being kind are not necessarily the same thing. It shows us that being kind is not the absence of conflict, but yet the right kind of conflict, healthy conflict. Also shows us, as of, according to the definition I put forward, that kindness is not. Not being willing to say what's necessary, but indeed, being willing to say what is necessary. Being willing to do something for the benefit of those who you desire their godliness, who desire their reconciliation, who do you desire something good for. Such was God's attention for all of Israel, all the Pharisees, all the disciples, who said what they needed at the right time. A simple test is, is this kind? Well, what do you desire by it? Here's the thing also, because every side has two stories, every coin has two sides. You can say something you think needs to be said, and you cannot be kind by it. What's your desire? What do you desire by it? How do you know if something was meant in kindness? Well, what was the desire behind it? We'll get to how to get into this in just a minute. Simple test. Sometimes the kind thing may not be the nice thing, but yet also sometimes saying what you think needs to be said is not the kind or nice thing. Life's complicated, isn't it? I'm going to give you a really quick hack. Most of you hopefully know this, but if you don't know this, I'm not trying to be a miracle worker. This will improve any relationship you have almost immediately if you're not practicing it right now. You ready? It's like three people grab their pencils. Here's the thing about communication. Here's the thing about saying stuff. When you talk, you have the responsibility of both what you said and how it was heard. Meaning, it's not an excuse if someone misheard you because you have the responsibility both for what you said and how it was heard. You may think that's not fair. It's called good communication. When you say something, it's your responsibility to whoever you say it to, to both say what you mean to say as well as make sure they understood what you meant, not just wonder, oh, I hope they heard that right. Now, likewise, two sides, those who are hearing, you have the responsibility both of what you heard and of what was actually said. You think this is simple except anyone been married a while? How hard is this? Anyone have a good friend that you actually share life with? How hard is this? Most innocent example is that one day someone mentions, you know, um, the wife in their relationship, maybe, you know, I'm just I'm just I'm just I'm getting a little heavy. I'm just not excited about my weight right now. And of course, what's the young dumb husband do? He goes and buys a weight loss book and gives it to his wife and says, Here you go, honey. And she gets I weight! <laughs> And he goes, What? What do you do that for? How could you be so mean to me? What's happening here is exactly this. Being responsible for what you say and how it was heard, as well as being responsible for what you heard as well as what was actually said. And that's an innocuous thing, but I cannot tell you, brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how many times people have been across from my, uh, in my, you know, in my office on the couch. And we are going through exercises that are actually called assertive talking and active listening to where literally they say something about their relationship and the other person goes, what I heard you say was. And I cannot tell you how many times they get it wrong. Even though I said, Roland, repeat after me. I appreciate you except that I don't like when you do this. And they say, you you say I'm never around. That's not what I said. It's amazing how many times that happens. Because we don't practice this. I'm going to do it one more time because this actually is in any kind of relationship, any kind of relationship, I'm stating it, you have the responsibility when you're the speaker of both what you said and how it was heard and you have the responsibility of both what you heard and what was actually said. What does this mean you have to do sometimes? It means you have to follow up. It means you have to develop skills. In fact, as I said... This is something I teach in marriage counseling, in relationship counseling. This is something that any good communications coach or marriage coach or therapist will know about. Assertive talking is able, the ability to express yourself openly and honestly, positively and confidently. Be able to say, this is what I feel, this is what I need. Active listening. I'm going through these fast. If you want more about this, let me know. Active listening. Be attentive. Ask open-ended questions. Ask probing questions. Cl- request clarification. So many arguments could be avoided from anyone if you just go, wait. Did you mean this, Lois? <clears throat> yes. <gasps> no, but... <laughs> Paraphrase. What I heard you say was this. Be attuned in to reflect feelings and summarize. It seems like a lot. It's really not that hard if you practice, but so many conflicts could be avoided and so many conflicts can be turned into healthy conflict if we just take ownership for what we say and what we hear. Now, why does that play into the desire? aspect, because it seemed like I went a really kind of weird therapy course on you, right? Well, in order to actually desire something truly for someone, you have to have kindness in relationship. Here's the definition we're working with. Saying or doing what is needed to show goodness, mercy, and compassion to those who are in, or we should be, in right relationship with. Here's the million dollar question when it comes to this. In order To know what is needed, in order to know if you're not in good relationship or in good relationship, how do you know? How do you know what is needed for someone unless you actually know what is needed for them? Not what you think, not what you assume, not what you guess. How do you actually know? It means you know because you've spent time with them, you've talked, you've listened, you've reflected you've been in relationship with them? Why do you, as a parent, know what your kids need? Because you're with them all the time. Why do you know what your husband or wife hopefully usually needs from you? Because you've talked about it. God does it with us. We don't do it well with each other. How do you know What is actual kindness to this person, or that person, or that person? Unless you know, you don't know. And you only know that by actually having a relationship with them. Likewise, how many people off the street would appreciate someone saying, Hey, you there, it looks like you put on a couple pounds lately. If I had a Bible, I might smack them with it and say, Bless you in the name of Jesus. But, who in your life could tell you, hey, you're, you're, you're or I've noticed you seem a little down, or hey, about this thing, why can they do that with you? Because you have a relationship with them. Lord, forgive us all the times that we have tried to discipline members of the church without actually knowing what they need or knowing anything about their lives. Lord, forgive us any time that we try to offer correction of people without the desire for godliness and just because we want to give it off our backs or because well they need it without the relationship Lord forgive us you cannot be biblically kind to someone you are not in actual true real relationship with once again preposition I know why do I say it this way you can be nice to them and you can act kindly to them, but the definition of biblical kindness, to do something that is useful, do something that is of service, do something that is needed, you cannot do that unless you actually know what the needs are. And you know what the needs are. Why? Because you know them, you know what they need, and you actually do have a desire for them to be like God, be like Christ, a desire to be better. Likewise, two, two sides of every coin. You can be unkind to those you are in actual, true, and real relationship with, not by showing goodness, mercy, compassion, or doing what's needed for a right relationship. Go back to before. With the doctor, with the teacher, with the married couple. You know what all that is? You can say by not dealing with the conflict, by denying the conflict, by inaction, by not resolving, by denial. You know what you can actually call that? Unkindness. Unloving. You could call that cruel because you're not actually giving them what they need from you. Not resolving conflict? How many... I will show my hand. You don't have to. I'll do it for you. How many times have I been so stupid to not, let, to not actually talk to Amy about something, and it festers for two or three days, it drives me crazy, it drives her crazy, we affect our kids, we start acting weird, we don't sleep very well. You know what that's called? not loving my wife. Because instead of actually dealing with it, I'm letting it sit and do nothing about it. That's cruel. That's unloving. That's unkind. Something i already here. Brothers and sisters, I say this as your minister and as your friend and as your brother. We as a congregation do not do healthy conflict well. That's why I'm preaching this today. We have been unkind and unloving to each other when we just let things sit and don't deal with things. I'm not trying to get honest. I'm saying it because I care about you. I love you. And we can do better because God does better for us. And if God does better for us, then we can do better as well. Relationship, the desire to be like God, because it all comes down to wanting Christ likeness for one another. A couple of verses for you. John seventeen Father, he's praised, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. Listen to this. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they know you, not just know about you, but know you are in relationship with the one who desires the best thing for them by turning you into Christ. See how that works? Another verse. It's a long one, but I didn't want to break it up. Philippians 2. You probably know it. Therefore. I hate therefores, starting sentences. Go look it up. I didn't have room on the slide. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, kindness, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but... Each of you to the interests of others kindness as Christ showed us, which in what looked what? In their relationship with one another, had the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, as his creation, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot in there, but what do you take away from it? It means that in order to be kind, you have to think of the other person above yourself. You have to become the servant, emulating who Christ was, and do things that may be uncomfortable for each other. It means that you don't think of your own interest. Well, that's uncomfortable. That might make them mad. If it's true kindness and you desire it in the good way, you choose to be kind or not. Likewise, when you hear things, how do you hear something in humble spirit? It's the of listening I talked about earlier, by the way. Therapy has discovered what Christ has been trying to teach us for 2,000 years. One more. Kindness should lead towards Christ-likeness for all involved. There are people who will abuse this because they're going to say, well, Thomas told me to tell you what needs to be told, and you need to be told that you're an absolute jerk. You're not being kind. Everyone knows you're not. Stop pretending. Kindness should lead you, as well as the person you're talking to, to be more like Christ. If you can't say that this will indefinitely, don't say it. Because you're acting outside of the relationship and your desire is wrong. But if in the relationship you know that they need something to say they need to be told something that will make them better that will make you better that will make the situation better that's Christ likeness it all comes down brothers and sisters like everything does that Christ showed us the ultimate kindness by not only becoming part of his creation but dying the ultimate death to deal with any and every reason why we would not be kind to each other why we would not love one another why we would not be like Him to one another. It all comes down to anything and everything we do is because of this, from this, and to help each other be like this in order that we are Christ's crucified to each other, to the world, back to God. Kindness. To desire godliness. Kindness in actual relationship. And kindness, maybe I should have put, towards Christ-likeness. Because God demonstrated his own love towards us while we were still sinners do we have any excuse not to be kind to one another? Do we have any excuse not to accept kindness from one another? Brothers and sisters if God is love we ought to emulate God's Kindness towards us in saying what's necessary in love, grace, compassion, and transformation for His glory. Is it going to be hard? Yes! Nothing's ever easy. Kindness is worth it. God calls us to it, God empowers us to it we can be kind because love is kindness to the glory of God